This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to A Real Man Wood Podcast. This is Chris Liss, your host, and I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, Dalton Del Don of Yahoo Sports. What's going on, dude? How you doing? Doing well, Liss. Uh, played in a golf tournament over the weekend, which was fun. I only do that about once or twice a year. Best ball. We weren't very good. Um, then I went to my great nephew's, uh, had a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. Um, also, I forgot, last we talked, I was headed off to that Warriors game. Uh, that was uh, pretty funny. In- entering the game, um, my buddy, uh, his tickets were denied, and whoever posted it on StubHub actually posted the wrong date. So he frantically, luckily, we found the same similar seats, uh, similar price. But um, I already told you this story on the XM show, but I have not told him the podcast. But uh, yeah, he, he kind of ruined the game for the rest of the game for him as he sat next to me and was more concerned about getting a refund than he was watching the live in, event in front of him, <laughs> which got very, very silent when Durant went down. But thankfully, I know you're very worried. Uh, the Warriors have recovered, playing beautiful basketball, passing the ball a lot, and up 1-0 now, and uh, yeah, good times in basketball. I don't know if you've had any thoughts in uh, Zion or if you watch the NBA draft lottery or, um, or anything else. I know you said you're dealing with a stomach virus. Yeah, I've just been a little bit sick for a couple of days, but hopefully it's, uh, hopefully it's not Ebola. I would just <laughs> say one thing. I'd love it if Durant missed the rest of the playoffs uh, and, and Golden State swept both series. And then it was just like once and for all, like, dude, you signed here. You got a couple of cheap rings, but you're not needed. I would love that because he shouldn't have signed there. A real man would have signed with a team that needed him and really, you know, had him as a difference maker. You know, obviously as a Knicks fan, I would like to see Zion, but uh, I'm not going to go all uh, full Stephen A. Smith on it because if you root for a team like the Knicks, you just, you know, and I can't imagine people living and dying with the Jets all these years. Like, I can't, I don't even know what, what's going on with that. And we'll talk about the Jets because there's some funny stuff going on there. But if you, if you root for a team like the Knicks, and, you know, maybe I'm a bad fan, but I just check out, you know, I, I, ever since, like, they signed Alan Houston to that deal, and it was, like, Keith Van Horn and Stephon Marbury and Amari Stoudemire and Carmelo Anthony. I mean, every washed-up scrub, Steve Francis. It was, like, everybody that was never really as good as their stats were. And then beyond that, they were past their prime. They signed for, like, 20 years now. So I don't care about the Knicks. I mean, I don't, you know, I, of course, like, I was psyched when they had Porzingis. Of course they traded him. Um, and then, mm-hmm. although he keeps getting in trouble with the law. Yeah, I know. Uh, he got into a fight uh, the other day in some nightclub. But uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, you know, they trade Porzingis. They're one potential star. They, they miss out on the lottery. It's like, I don't even care. And when ownership is that rotten from the top, like James Dolan, it, there's nothing you can really do because you can always fire a GM. You can always fire a coach, but you can't fire the owner. I mean, yeah. what's his name? Uh, Sterling got himself fired, but that's a whole that's a very unique case. So you really can't fire the owner, and 
it's just rotten from the top. So I don't care about that. It's cool. I, you know, I saw a little bit of the uh, college tournament, and Zion moves like ridiculously well for a guy his weight, two eighty five, and the guy moves like he's you know five ten one ninety. Anthony Davis, you know, if they trade him for some huge package of young players or they play together, it should be, should be kind of cool. Yeah, truly a unique uh, prospect. As a Warriors fan, I was rooting for him not to join forces with LeBron and definitely selfishly didn't want the Knicks to get him. I'm worried, you know, KD and Kyrie and Zion all end up there, although Durant probably ends up there anyway. I hear what you're saying about Durant and the Warriors, but I, I do think they probably need him uh, against the, the, the Bucks, possibly in, in the finals. But but we'll see. One other thing, quick thing I'll say about the NBA before we move on and talk some football is uh, against the Raptors, I don't know if you saw this, but Joel Embiid, his plus minus was plus 90, went on the court. And plus the Sixers 10, yeah. were, mi- were, were, were plus 90, and the Sixers were minus 109 with them off total. I mean, that oh, is in just, the series. In the series. Yeah, like how good the, he is. In the series. Yeah, that, that is just pretty, pretty crazy considering he was dealing with an illness and a banged up knee. And uh, he's so young and all that. But that, that's pretty crazy stuff. And that was Ka- Kawhi Leonard's – that was the first ever Game 7 uh, buzzer beater in playoff history. Pretty sick, the, the bouncing. I actually left and missed some of Game of Thrones, which we'll get to later too, uh, to check out that shot. But I want to bring up next the, uh, the magazine mock draft we're both in for Rotowire with PPR version for football. Um, you kind of threw in there, do bet $50, me, you, and Brad Evans – Best ball. I don't know how that's going to work logistically. Yeah, are you going to put that? I don't, yeah. no. <laughs> are you going to put that? I think. In? I but, think. Uh, and I'm sure Brad, because Brad is hilarious about this kind of stuff. He's very easygoing with bets. He's very fair. I think what we'll do is it'll be either totally obvious that somebody won, or it'll be very hard to tell. And if one team is obviously terrible, they'll just send the other guy 25 each. And then if you know two teams are way worse than the other, then they'll send that guy 50 each. You know what I mean? That's right. Oh. It'll just okay. be sort of the eye yeah. test. Like you, most of these kind of things, you look at it and you're like, "Yeah, you lost both your running backs and you lost your quarterback." So um, it's a little unfair. I took two QBs because <laughs> I was like, I was like, you know, this in a best ball, I'd way rather have the second QB just in case. I was going to get to that, and I was absolutely going to bring that up. <laughs> you took the second QB. Like, I was trying to make it more representative, but that, that is funny and definitely probably ended up screwing me and Evans and, and the smarter thing to do. Do you have any other thoughts? I almost took uh, Kittle in round two, which you fell to you, which you ended up taking. Um, I, um, I've been wondering, you know, I've been toying with the idea of taking four straight running backs, and uh, I cowardly, like a nutless monkey, took uh, Chris Godwin in round three, whom I like a lot in that offense, but... In hindsight, I should have taken another back there. I really think that's the way to go, just load up on the backs. Um, I really like Daryl Henderson a lot. You grab, obviously, our best ball, but I'm down on Gurley this year. I kind of like four. I went Dante Foreman. He's kind of an upside guy with Lamar Miller. No no one I like. I like Brad Evans grabbing Deshaun Watson, where he was. I mean, that team has no running game, uh, whatever the defense, uh, offensive line, the disaster. But what if, like, Fuller and Cootie is healthy? And, I mean, they could go – Watson, another year returning from that knee, he could go nuts. So um, that was my general thoughts other than, other than man, I think you load up on running back. And I think there are a ton of flyer wide receivers late, and they're going to look very different on everyone's draft board. So I think you can wait on wide receiver, which is probably going to be semi-contrarian, I'm guessing. What are your thoughts, Liz? No, I think that's probably right. I agree with a lot of that. I kind of like the up-and-coming players that, that are already good and that the team's invested a lot of capital in and that are going to get bigger roles. So I got DJ Moore 
because Devin Funches is gone. Like he's clearly the number one guy there. And also last year Cam was hurt all year, so you know he's the passing game in general is going to be better. I got Mike Williams who had ten touchdowns on sixty six targets, and you know Tyrell Williams is gone. I'm Hunter Henry's going to be there, so it may offset. But I try to get guys like that. Yeah, Henderson. I I think that I was talking to Mike Clay about this. He he had Henderson uh, projected very low, only like twelve catches, and that's initially I had him like twenty catches, and then I looked at it and I gave him forty one catches yeah. because I wanted him to be bumped up in my rankings. Because if Gurley's fine, you know, maybe Henderson doesn't do anything. But, A, I could see Gurley not being fine and Henderson being like a top five overall pick. I mean, seriously, that's, that's in play. The guy runs like a 4-4. Uh, and he's, sure. you know, he's, he's probably not going to get 250 carries because he's only about uh, 205 or whatever. But he's, he's really fast and he can catch passes. But then also, like, they could just, because if he's good, and we'll have to see how good he is, they could just do an Ingram Kamara thing. I mean, it makes so much sense. Like, why would you overwork Gurley when you're trying to get deep into January? Uh, why wouldn't you just give him 215 carries and give Henderson 120 and then throw to both of them out of the backfield? Yeah, they kind of likes to hide Goff, too. No, I, I'm totally with you. Gurley, at best, he stays healthy, but in a more limited role. And for sure, why can't he be there, Kamara? So, yeah, I mean, that offense is going to score so many points wherever they do it. So, I'm totally with you there. Certainly, back, I, I, Mike Williams, love the upside. Uh, even same thing with DJ Moore, but why is he for sure the clear above Curtis Samuel? Wasn't Samuel a pretty high pick as well? I mean, I Samuel's, agree he is probably the 1A, but I mean, isn't he like the 1A and 1B there kind of? Well, Samuel was the second round pick also. Uh, Samuel's, you know, not that durable. He gets hurt a lot. And Moore is just like, I think he weighs like 215. He's like 5'11", 215. He's built like Heinz Ward or Juju or something like that. And he's just sort of the big workload type of guy. And they give him carries and he's got great vision. He's, a, he's like a good running back. Now, of course, McCaffrey's there. Olsen's back. There's a lot of guys there. But I just I see Samuel Moore as, like, gadget guy. You know, he'll get some. He's good, too. I mean, I, I would draft him at some point in the draft. But Moore just seems like the physical number one. And they took him. He was the first receiver taken in last year's draft. Right. Any other thoughts on your team? Like, you, uh, you took a, what, Zerline in round 10? You're the first to go the, the kicker plunge before either of your two QBs? Yeah, because I was like, QBs at this point, are, I'm going to get one or two. They're fine, like Trubisky and Winston. I like them both, and like, so I, I didn't really care. I knew I'd, you know, there's nobody in between those two picks at QB that I would have cared about. I knew I was getting two QBs, a kicker and a defense. So the biggest difference maker that I could take was a kicker. And Zerline, I mean, how money was he in the playoffs? He's clearly completely healthy and kicks really long field goals. I like Andy Isabella, too, because I think that Arizona offense might just be totally souped up. I almost took David Johnson over Alvin Kamara. Evan's got uh, David Johnson. Kamara's obviously safer after last year, but David Johnson could just go absolutely bonkers in that, in that new offense. I, I got Andy Isabella, so I got a little piece of it. I think Fitzgerald has got to be on his last legs by now, and Christian Kirk, eh, he's okay, but that's the old regime. You know, They drafted Isabella and uh, Hakeem Butler, so... I think there'll be a lot of passes in that offense. There's no real tight end they throw to, so kind of kind of like him too. What do you think of me taking Jarek McKinnon in the seventh? Yeah, I probably should have taken Kyler Murray in the tenth. Um, yeah, it's just going to be a three-headed monster there in San Francisco. Why not? I mean, he came at a, a, a cheaper price, obviously. There, They're still committed to him. It sounds like Tevin Coleman's going to be their goal line guy. It sounds like what Shanahan's saying, but sure, where you've got him there. Um, I'm, I'm big on the Niners this year. I think they're going to score a lot of points, so uh, I'd like that pick there. But Kittle... I mean, in round two, he's going to be a monster. I, I love him. You definitely went away from my load up on back strategy there. We're not taking another back in round two, three, four, five, or five. So interesting there. Kind of, kind of a zero RB. 
hybrid. Well, that was well, my first pick was a running back, and right, <laughs> hybrid. I mean, all the good running backs were gone. I mean, I guess I could have taken Damian Williams. Evans had a great start because he shouldn't have got Antonio Brown. So you got David Johnson, Antonio Brown, Damian Williams. That's a good start. Yeah, he'll screw it up. So he screwed it up later. I mean, who was? I mean, that was the one guy I could have taken. Is Damian? That was the only one I was like, oh yeah, Damian Williams. Yeah, there's upside, but I'm still not confident that he's going to get enough reps. I mean, I could have taken Devonta Freeman, Josh Jacobs, Derrick Henry there in a PPR, David Montgomery. I don't know. Sony Michelle could have. I could have taken there. I kind of like taking Diggs and uh, Mike Williams where I got him. Yeah. Anyway, good stuff. Um, I, I, what about what are your thoughts on that Jets uh, firing of the GM? I just think it's so funny, right? I mean, he just spent all this money on all these players, including Le'Veon Bell, who apparently the the rest of the brain trust didn't even want. And that's just now that's embarrassing. Bell should hold out, you know. So if I'm not wanted here, I'm not showing up. I don't care. Just find me and say I, I want to go. You got to trade me to somewhere I'm wanted. But uh, <laughs> he should do that. He should. A real man would do that. A real man would do that. Yeah. Well. But anyway, so they they commit all this money, all these players, and they have the guy run the draft. And then three weeks after the draft, after they've spent all this money, they're like, ah, you're fired. That's just bizarre. And the thing is, like, it was a con- I-, I assume he had a hand in hiring Gaze in the first place. So if Gaze, like, hated him so much, didn't he probably hired Gaze. So that's a real stab in the back. Gaze just seems crazy. He's a crazy person, man. He was, like, crazy in Miami. He was, like, loving Devontae Parker, and then he hated Devontae Parker, and then he's starting... He gives carries to this random back, and then he just doesn't use Kenyon Drake the whole game and just says all this bizarre stuff. His eyes are darting He's every got which those way. Guys. His eyes are bugging out of his He's head. He's crazy. Exactly. But Gettleman is yeah. crazy too. Gettleman's just like Gettleman's just like in his own world. He just has yeah. his own lingo. He's like old school. Yeah, I got all the jargon about all these players, and I do it my way and whatever, but doesn't care. It's so weird that like the biggest market in the country has like two total nut jobs running the show yeah and, i know so weird but i like it as a giants fan i'm enjoying the uh preposterous drama it's just it's just hilarious i don't think it's going to end well yeah this kind of makes me second guess my i was leaning toward picking the jets to make the playoffs i guess i don't know if that's a reason to to, to back off that but may, maybe it is enough really they made some interesting moves and i and i liked their their draft and their direction that franchise was going. But this gives me pause. Obviously, it's a problem. And Gase did to begin with, frankly. He had me a little bit concerned. But I can I can understand what he's saying. I like Bell, the player, but I hate the contract and spending the money on that position. Does this give you any pause whatsoever, like fantasy terms? Or, or no, that shouldn't matter. Yeah, a little bit. Gase is weird, man. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, Bell, the money's getting paid. They should use him a lot, but... You never know with him. And then this just makes it even more strange. And he may want to prove himself right now. You know, that, that, that's the issue is that guys make a call or they make a decision. And now they got to prove themselves right. If Bell gets 2,300 yards from scrimmage, 90 catches and 20 touchdowns, um, then, you know, Gaze, even though some people still think, oh, he's still right. You still don't pay for the running back. But a lot of regular fans and front office people say, no, you're an idiot. You're, you're the guy who didn't even want this guy. So maybe he's not going to be incentivized to really feed Bell the rock. Right. And he also, no, he also I, doesn't you know. think that it's a good idea. To, I mean, you know, he doesn't think it's smart football. Yeah, I know. And Bell's going to be upset. No, it's a weird situation. I didn't really see that coming. But, uh, yeah, it's something to at least consider. How did that leak out? Right. How did that, I mean, like, 
I, I, it must have been from know, the GM weird. who got fired, right? Because because there's no, I mean, that's like terrible to leak out. Like, of course, there's behind the scenes disagreements on players, but once you don't, you don't like leak that stuff out. I mean, at RotoWire, we're always like, we need to get rid of Dalton Del Don. There's got to be some way that like maybe Yahoo will take him off our hands or something. You, you know, kept that internal pod- though. And yeah, exactly. Until this yeah. podcast, it didn't leak out, but right, right. Totally. Yeah, and I don't know what's going on there, but clearly, clearly, there's a, some issues going on in that franchise. All right, we're talking some. Let's move to baseball. And before we talk about anything, I don't know if you're sar- tired or sick of talking about it, but have to bring up this first pitch strike percentage. And your segment with Paul Spore on XM was good, so good that you wrote a blog about it. So for those who have not yet heard, talk about the issue and, and talk about first pitch strike percentage. So it wasn't that good of a segment because I didn't convince Paul of what's obviously true. So I didn't. No, it was a good segment. It was a good. It might have been entertaining because we're yelling at each other, but but it wasn't good. I wasn't. I didn't do a good job persuading because if I did do a good job persuading, he would have been like, "Ah, "I see what you're saying. You're right," because it's obvious. Basically, he was criticizing my take. The first strike percentage is a worthless metric, and the reason I think it's worthless is not because throwing strikes isn't useful or throwing strikes on a particular pitch isn't useful. It's that when we have all strike percentage and strikeout rate and strikeouts, we don't need first pitch strike percentage. We already know how good of a strikeout pitcher the guy is. We don't need to see the sequencing. It doesn't give you anything extra, which is different. I mean, some people actually argue that uh, swing strike rate doesn't give you anything extra than strikeout percentage, but you could see that maybe swing strikeout rate, at least theoretically could correlate more with strikeouts, because strikeouts come from foul balls, and they also come from you know called strikes, so that if you if you were to say okay, the real mechanism, uh, the reliable mechanism at which pitchers can strike batters out is making them swing and miss, and this guy's got a high swing strike rate, he, that portends more strikeouts. And I don't have to explain to people why strikeouts are good. Strikeouts are good because they're the risk-free way of getting an out. Every time you put the ball in play, you might hit it to a fielder and get an out, but it might go for a hit. But a strikeout, there's no risk, so that's why strikeouts are good. And swing strike rate, at least, you know, I've heard it debated both ways. My, you could see that that's the most, that skill is the main skill in achieving a strikeout. So someone with a high swing strike rate relative to their strikeout total, maybe that would give you more information. It would measure the skill of swing and miss, measure the strikeout skill. So for a metric to be useful, it has to measure something, and that thing should be predictive. You know, strikeouts are predictive of um, run prevention. Swing strikes might be predictive of actual strikeouts. But... The question is, is first pitch strike percentage predictive of some skill? You say, well, yeah, it's a good skill. It means you, you've got command. It means you get ahead in the count. It's like, yeah, but is it predictive of a skill that we don't already know about? So let's say, in my example of swing strike rate, let's say a guy had 200 strikeouts, but he had a really, really high, let's say he had 150 strikeouts, but he had a really, really high swing strike rate. You might think, ah, his swinging strike rate means if he just got a few more foul balls, he could have got a really a lot of strikeouts. So that might be predictive of more strikeouts going forward. This guy's got 200 strikeouts. This guy's got 150 strikeouts in the same amount of innings. They have the same ERA. Which guy's going to have the better ERA going forward? The 200 strikeout guy, all things being equal, because he's not relying on the luck of batted balls. He, he's getting risk-free outs at a higher rate than the other guy. So that's predictive. But if you look at first pitch strike percentage, if we know that the guys have the same amount of strikeouts, then what's first pitch strike percentage predictive of? If they have the exact same numbers, but one guy has the better first pitch strike percentage, what would that be predictive of? 
Do you, do you have an answer for me? It's predictive of uh, what they're what they're going to do following that. Is that what you're well, getting no, at? no. I'm saying like, let's say two guys have the same stats, but one guy has a higher swing strike rate. That's right. predictive of that guy maybe getting more strikeouts, and him getting more strikeouts okay. would be predictive of a better ERA. Makes sense. Okay. So let's say two guys have the same stats, but one has a better first pitch strike percentage. What's that predictive of? Well, it's, pre- it's predictive of, um, of nothing. Nothing. Because you could say, well, it's predictive of his command. He throws a strike. Yeah, but the other guy, if they have the same stats, and this guy got out ahead, well, then the other guy didn't get out ahead as much, but he had the same stats. So he must have done better on the subsequent pitches. If you have all pitch strike percentage... Why would first pitch strike percentage, what does it predict? In other words, if you have the guy's full complement of stats, what is, why would you look at first pitch strike percentage above and beyond his regular stats? What could it possibly predict? Yeah, um, to getting back swinging strike percentage real quick, I, I still use that, well, no, but I've heard Derek let's, Hardy. Let's, well, yeah, I, we'll talk about the Cardi thing. Let's stay with this point. I mean, aren't we talking I, I, about this I was just going to, I was, just, I was, all right, I know. I was just going to briefly say that I've heard him say that. And I think the reason he says it is, is there's a skill and a called strike like Aaron Nola has. But yes, back to the first right. strike percentage. I get that the argument, and it sounds compelling when you frame it in the sense of the difference between like OPS on an 01 count versus a 10 count. But that is the exact same way of framing like the NFL team scoring first. And what happens afterward. Right. And another way of... Right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll spell it out so people understand, because that, that's extremely irrelevant, right? They're like, well, obviously it's better to be 0-1 than 1-0. That's not even relevant to this discussion, because we know the outcome. If I were, like, if I were trying to predict an outcome, and I said, do you think this guy's going to make an out or get a hit? And, and then I said, okay, now he's 0-1 instead of 0-0. Now, now is he going to make an out or get a hit? The odds would change, because we're trying to predict the outcome. Let's say I told you... He got a base hit. Okay, we know that. But let's, let's go back and look at the tape. Oh, he's uh, 0-1. What are the odds? Do the odds change now that he's 0-1? No. He's a 100% chance of getting a base hit. We know he already got the base hit. That's the kind of stupid argument it is. They're actually saying that, oh, well, it's advantageous to be 0-1. Yeah, no shit. But if you already know he got a hit or you already know he made an out, it doesn't matter what the count was. We already know the final stats. You're acting like this, this advantage... This, you know, this advantage temporarily is something important to study when we already know the result of the, the at-bat. Right, and when, let me frame this another way. I was thinking about this. Uh, those who do get high first pitch strike percentages, they might be doing that by, by getting shelled early in the bat, like with, with that first pitch. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, that's they're right. They're always I mean, throwing right, pitches every time around, I, so you're never even factoring that. So that, right. maybe they're acquiring that stat, but by also suffering a bunch of hits right away. You get what I'm saying? Of course. Of course. And, right, and batters who, you know, and maybe there's a lag, but like, oh, this guy really always tries to establish that first pitch. Actually, they're, you know, it helps them because they get ahead. And then eventually batters are like, no, you got to rip this guy's first pitch. He always throws it over. Although it's not always a call. It could be a swing strike, which might mean that it's a nasty first pitch. But, but my point is, do you understand the distinction is that it's, the event has already happened. We already know the result. So if the guy's already hit a home run or gotten an out or done whatever, the percentages ahead or behind by each potential count doesn't matter. We're not trying to predict what he's going to do. We already know what he did. Same thing, and, and we said the football analogy, but very simply, if 
we looked at which teams scored first in football games. We know that obviously scoring first is correlated with winning. You're better off scoring than getting scored against. Obviously, if, if you looked at all the data, I don't know what the number is, but I guarantee the first team to score a touchdown wins more than 50% of the time. I'm 100% sure of that. I don't know what they could be 58% of the time, 55, something like that. And obviously, if you're scored against, it's not good. But we never say, oh, at the end of the year, the Rams scored X amount of points. The Patriots scored Y amount of points. Ooh, let's look at who scores first more often. That's super important because when you score first, you get to control the tempo of the game. Why would you do that? You know how many points they scored overall. You know what their record is. You know what their net point differential, their yards per play are. Why would you look at something like who scored first? That's what this is. It's numerology. It, it's, so I, I can't even believe this is an argument. It's just, it's like a logical fail. It's like an, it's a, it's an analytical fail. It's like they're, they're getting caught up in the correlation and they're not seeing that the correlation or the advantage you get from being 1-0 or 0-1 is irrelevant to something that's already happened. We're not trying to predict it. It's only relevant when you're, when you're trying to predict an unknown. When we have all the stats of actually how the outcomes turned out, then it's not relevant. Yeah, so I mean, I guess the, the counter would just be, would they say that, is it a repeatable skill? I mean, obviously scoring first in football is not. Is throwing that first pitch strike, is that a repeatable skill? Why would skill? that be re- any more you, repeatable you know, than throwing getting strikes generally? It's, right, it's, of right. course it's a repeatable skill, but you'd have to demonstrate that it is repeatable in a way that was different than throwing strikes generally. Right. And because like obviously other the, control and command are super important and predictive, but if, if the guys have the same numbers or different, whatever the numbers are, his numbers are his numbers. Uh, you can't tell me that, that, oh, well, he's just really good on this one pitch, but he's not good at these other pitches. He's not good. He has no command on these other pitches. Just the sequence, his command just completely depends on the sequence. Yeah, no, I, I could look up. I want the guy who's the best you know what strike this is percentage like? on, full, on it, full counts. I'd want the guy who does the best strike percentage on right. full counts. Well, 1-1 one, one is the most important one, but even that's irrelevant because we still know that we know the results. We don't need to break it down by count. All right. Um, anyway, so last night's closing time, I, uh, I linked to this podcast here, and I uh, took a talking yang to you because Vladdy hit two homers. Talking our Senzel Vladdy bet, I said I already uh, spit spent my winnings on our bet after you went deep twice last night in san francisco so wanted to tell you that and uh yeah, i saw that i saw it i clicked okay. on it he got an R- he got an rbi today but he's over two so he's still batting uh yeah. 226 your guy yeah he weirdly has like some like negative launch angle but the first like dozen games but uh, i i think you're gonna see more two bomb games, but um, what are your, hey, I have any thoughts, because um, uh, I know this podcast is deep in-depth player analysis, but do you have any thoughts on these prospects coming up, though, in baseball? Because it's kind of odd to have, like, five all at once like this. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's the Matt Modica thing where, like, it's a, it's a young man's game. They're cheaper. They're signing to these deals. They, they're not worried about the clock quite as much this year, it seems like. So they're just sort of opening the floodgates. And it's just a trend, and a lot of them are going to be able to hit. I got into it on XM because Rob Silver, who's won the main event, uh, who's won the entire thing a few years ago, he was you know, comparing the steamer projections for Austin Riley to like Albert Pujols. It's about the same. Or Keston Hira. What's his name? Hira? Hira. Hira. Um, yeah, Hira. Yeah, to some other very, oh, Lourdes Gurriel steamer projections, even though Gurriel's still in the minors. And saying, you know, why are you going to break the bank for these guys? Or he wasn't really saying don't. He was just saying be cautious. And but there is a reason because the steamer projections are mean projections. They're averages. So obviously, a guy like Pujols or Adam, I used Adam Jones as my example in the, in the radio clip because he's just like a known quantity. Probably has the same projections. Probably better projections than Austin Riley rest of the season. 
but it's like if the, the problem is it's asymmetric the the if austin riley goes crazy then he's going to be a huge difference maker for you if he's terrible then you cut him Whereas Adam Jones' range is much narrower, right? He's just probably going to be Adam Jones. He's solid, going to fill a spot for you. He's going to you know, put up the numbers you need probably, but he doesn't have the ceiling. And so it's, you, the steamer projection doesn't care about our stupid game. The steamer projection is just saying, here's the mean projection for this guy. But when you cut off the bottom 40% as cut and you're just looking at the top 60%, then the guy with the upside actually is worth quite a bit more in this situation. That's not the case with your first-round pick or your third-round pick where the downside matters a lot, right? You can't just cut him and be fine. But some guy you're picking up of waivers, of course you can cut him if he doesn't work out. So basically there's an asymmetric situation where you, you get to reap all of the upside if he pops, and you only have to take on a little bit of the downside before you get fed up and cut him if he doesn't. So that projection, which Steamer doesn't care at all about, they're just saying, okay, assuming we give him, force him 450 at-bats rest of the way, Here's what his numbers are. And that's not the game that we're playing. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. If you're looking for a credit card that fits your lifestyle, look no further. U.S. Bank has credit cards that make every day rewarding, no matter what you're into. Feeling hungry? Check out the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points on takeout, food delivery, and dining. And get two times points at gas stations, grocery stores, and on streaming. That'll keep your wallet and your mouth full. Big spender? The U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card has a low intro APR for large purchases or balance transfers. And you call the shots with the U.S. Bank Cash Plus Visa Signature Card. Choose two categories each quarter. Earn 5% back on your first $2,000 of eligible purchases from those categories. So don't just get a credit card. Get the right card to make every day more rewarding. Cash back, merchandise, travel rewards, and low intro APRs are waiting. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. The creditor and issuer of these cards is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc., and the cards are available to United States residents only. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. For sure. No, the range of outcomes way different with a prospect, young guy like that. Right. So, uh, yeah, I get, I get why they would do the mean projection like that. For sure, I understand right. why they, they would do that. They don't care, but you also get why the yeah. market in the NFBC pays up for these guys. A thousand percent. Yeah. Do you, are you going to pay for any of these guys? I, I spent all, so much money on Ryan Brazier, who's now on the on the ropes, and I. Yeah. David Robertson is. I, so now all of a sudden my team surged. I was up in sixth place yesterday. I'm in eighth now, but everybody's hitting for suddenly. I'm, I'm I've gotten right behind a huge pack of guys in a few categories. I mean, I can I can really compete, but and I'm like upper middle pack in saves, like six or something in saves. But I just have Alex Colomay. I have Urias who. Did some domestic abuse. Now he's stuck, and he would get me a save, and he was really good in uh, his role. I have uh, Sean Kelly, who got an elbow infection. He's coming back tomorrow, hopefully. <clears throat> we'll see if he still has the role or some part of it. I had Brazier, who sucks, and I had Robertson. That's now, now it's weirdly saves is the category I'm worried about. I also drafted Aroidus Viscaino, who I obviously dropped. And the other problem is that uh, I could have drafted Steve Cjek. Nobody drafted him in my league. And I would have bid on him, but I went to sleep. You know, Portugal, I have an advantage a lot of the time because I can just, it's like midnight when the games start and I have like a lot of space and time to set my lineups, look at things by myself, no family around. But um, on Sunday night, that Sunday night game is super late for me. And usually it doesn't really matter. I just do my fab bids and go to sleep. Well, CJ got the save in that game and I didn't know that. And if I knew that, I definitely would have got him instead of Carlos Martinez who I ended up getting. 
Yeah, you know, a couple leagues. I have Diaz, Chapman, Trinan, uh, Giles in one. But for the most part, I've just given up on on closers. And it's been freeing not to have to worry about the fab, man. I've just uh, – I've even the main event, I'm like, I'm just starting nine starters uh, each week. And um, it's, 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 it's the most frustrating category. Uh, also, steals is the other one. And I blew all my fab on Cole Tucker, that scrub, and ended up uh, Gerard Dyson. Oh, yeah, I've got Dyson. Dyson, Dyson is amazing. He's killing it. He, he got became, two more steals so, today. Uh, did he really? Oh, nice. I haven't even seen yeah. that. So he became available in the main event, even though he's owned in like 97% of, of the, that league. Um, and I got him for $50. So after blowing it all on Tucker, I've had nice. So Dyson, two more steals today. Okay. So I've been excited about that. But yeah, the closer situation, I mean, it's just, it's like this every year. And it's, it's like I punted it in a couple leagues, yet spent the capital, the draft capital on it. So that's the, the worst of both worlds there. So I, I hear you. But um, yeah, I know I heard Jeff Erickson talking about um, C-Sheck too. He got him for cheap. And that, that could prove to be a, a great buy. I know. I'm pissed. He's going to be expensive this week. I hope I can sneak him in, but I don't think I will. Man, because I'm low on money. I, I could have got him for like eight bucks, you know? It's, it's super annoying. And, and literally, if I knew he got the save, I would have gone like probably 50 on him. So it is what it is, but that'll just be a, a headache. I, my, my philosophy now is just get good pitchers. Like Carlos Martinez, I got him. Uh, I'm looking at Josh James, who's still available. Just get guys who are pitching well. And A, you never know if Jordan Hicks or someone gets hurt or you know blows up or loses command. And B, because starters aren't going as deep anymore, more and more wins and saves, because there's fewer saves by closers and because there's fewer wins by starters, more and more wins and saves are going into that top-level, top-tier middle relief pool. If, and they get a ton of strikeouts. So any really good middle reliever, if they can pitch 80, 90 innings especially, is worth picking up and using. You know, and maybe they end up starting, maybe they're closing, they get moved around in different roles, but if you see a Carlos Martinez, if you see Julio Urias, assuming he doesn't get suspended for a long time, you got to just get those guys and, and trust the team to figure out a way to use them. It's, it's more and more that pitching roles are fluid now. Yeah, those prospects should go for a bunch in those NFPC uh, leagues this weekend, I'm guessing. Um, all right, you want to talk? Uh, only other thing in baseball is just me um, get fired up for my Twins preseason. I've been on the Padres 100 to 1, and I've been on the Twins 60 to 1. Uh, yeah, so I'm rooting for them, and the, and the Cleveland keeps having more and more problems. So fired up about that, and um, that's all I have for baseball this week. Uh, how, how are your teams doing in general? I mean, uh, the auction one is still terrible. We have Stanton, and who the hell knows what's going on with him, and we just can't. I, we had we had Reuters Viscaino and Archie Bradley as two of our closers. Stanton, Nolo is our ace. I mean, I think he'll bounce back, but... It's that one's shit. I, that one's in last place. Poor Schuler. He, he invested. He split it with me. Next year, I think I'm going to give him a discount. But the main event team is is legit. You know, I'm right behind a big pack of guys. I mean, I'm I'm worried about closer. Miguel Cabrera is missing a game with a knee injury. He's really sucked. I've got some catcher problems. You know, I've got issues, but I feel positive about it that my Tout Wars team is going crazy. I've got Tommy Lastella in, in that and the main event. I got um, Hinjin Ryu in the main event. I've got just the team's waking up. So. One of my, the one I'm beat Chrysalis, I'm with you, is in like sixth. The other one's in last, even though I still think that one has is, is got a good team, but it's got to really dig itself out of problems. But I don't know, except you're doing for that auction second, league. You're doing, a sec, you're doing a second chance one? Yeah, Greg, Greg was like, you want to do it? And, you know, these, the uh, beat Chrysalis are free rolls, so it's hard to turn that down. 
I don't really want a second chance, though, for myself because, A, my other team started surging. But even, even forget about that. It's just going to be just as frustrating in, in a month from now as it is now. You know what I mean? All the things you think now are going to change. It's not like, oh, now that we know what's going on this year, we can just do this. Right, because and maybe we know the the macro environment a little bit, but in terms of the players, there's going to be random guys that go crazy that you're like, what? I, I, you know, I drafted Bellinger, and now he's back to what he was last year, or whatever. You know, who knows? But <laughs> right. it's uh, it's going to be just as frustrating. So I don't think the second chance is. I think it's fine to do a second chance league just to. It's a good way to get ADPs, and it's a fun thing to do anyway. But I don't think it's going to uh, take care of your feeling of total misery and helplessness when the season goes unpredictably because I think it's just going to happen again to everybody in the second chance leagues too. You know, speaking of Bellinger, I was just looking at like the sprint speed scores whatever so far this year and that guy's the fastest from home plate to first base this season. Cody Bellinger. Yeah. Is the fastest Faster than Bucks then, huh? Pretty crazy. Well, yeah, I guess it helps being a lefty probably, but but uh, but yeah, he was recorded the fastest when I looked. Um Anyway, I hear you, but yeah, good to hear about the rest of your teams uh, on the rebound. Mine are doing better as well. Good to hear. Um, now to our weekly segment, um, although I think it's going to be a letdown, certainly to myself and to our listeners alike. But uh, this week's uh, Chris List review of the the latest episode, what would that be? Episode what, five of Game of Thrones. Yeah, so I... I actually really like this one, and I, I'm shocked because I thought, okay, this is, they totally screwed up the show. It's a bunch of hacks. They're totally pandering, and maybe I'll do a spoiler alert. I've been pretty good at not spoiling, um, but th- there are a couple of interesting things about it. One is, I was trying to tell you that, what's her name, uh, Daenerys is a sociopath. I was trying yes. to tell you that for a long time, I, you know, yep. and it's interesting that so many people, and this, this is actually like a political issue. Like you root for someone you like, someone you identify with, someone you think is cool. And then they go and murder uh, Tarly's family in the last season. And you think, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. They weren't that nice people, whatever. They were kind of jerks. And why did they murder them? Well, they wouldn't kneel for her. Well, that's sociopathic. I mean, that's, there's nothing, it doesn't get more sociopathic than that. But everyone sort of just overlooked that and was like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 she's the good guy. She's the good guy. And it's like, that's what goes on in politics, right? Like, you, there's someone you identify with and they do something horrible and you're like, no, 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 they're the good guy. It's okay. They had to do that. It was important because that showed her authority or, you know, this horrible thing, you know, again, there's the utilitarianism discussion we had last week. So I think they did a really good job of showing, I'm going to do great once I do this thing you know, this evil that I do is necessary for this greater good later for me ruling. Like that's a great illustration of how utilitarianism is totally twisted by tyrants. A couple episodes before the uh, decentralization point, the Bitcoin point, the single point of failure, no matter how superior your forces are, if they have a single point of failure, that's, it's, it's a big risk. They showed that in this, in this season. But what I liked about the season, and I won't get it too specific, is I just liked the way they didn't pander like the ending for a couple characters wasn't what probably people hoped. They hoped it was probably a lot worse. It was actually kind right. of humanizing and nice for a couple characters. And you're like, oh, wait, wasn't terrible things supposed to happen to that person? Weren't we supposed to get the, the payoff? But I actually thought that was kind of cool. It was kind of humanizing and also just like, all right, that it just that's how it went. I liked a, a bunch of it. I, I, I liked... Uh, I like the way one of the guys, as he was dying, 
was very happy with himself. What he thought he had accomplished, apparently he hadn't, but he was very <laughs> pleased with himself. I thought that was hilarious. Easy to please. I thought that the scenes were not, you could actually see the fighting. It wasn't totally dark this time. It really looked like a war zone. It looked like probably what it looks like when we like drone bomb people in cities. That's probably what it looks like and seems like. And it, it also showed, you know, if you get too close to the brink of war and one little thing happens, then, of course, everything can break loose. That's something that we have to worry about now with the probably bluffing about Iran. But it was just good. I just, I just thought it was, it was very satisfying to me. Yeah, that's interesting to me because um, I thought it was kind of more of the same, but you're not the first person to say that they hated uh, episode four, but really liked this one. So that's interesting to me. But uh, I will take it that you are not upset with Danny's turn because you, like you said, so- sociopath already. So you're not, there are people who are upset, you know, they didn't build it up enough or whatever. No, people, I mean, if you didn't see this coming, then you, that this is like identity politics. You identified with her as the good guy. They tricked you. Right. And... Yeah. She, she did some good things before, but she was a megalomaniac. I mean, she thought it was her destiny to rule everybody. I mean, that's a sick person. She even found out that John, what, what his role was, what their relationship was, and the truth about it, and she didn't give a fuck. Even when, so like the whole destiny thing, which at least like in her defense was like, oh, well, it's, you know, at least if you look at the lineage, like, yeah, she could think that. Even when that was debunked, she, she didn't feel any less entitled. That's, that's a sociopathic person. And always was. I, I want to say one other thing that's kind of crazy about the show. It was, you would think, like, ostensibly that it was like a feminist show because, like, a lot of the most powerful characters are female. The Basically, at least as far as we know it, like, the two of the, you know, final, finalists to rule are female. One of the knights that basically kicked the hound's ass and could have killed him was female. Arya, it's it's sort of a feminist show, and and that was that played in fine the whole the whole way, until they turned uh, Brienne into a blubbering mess, because what? Because she's you know all the dignity she had of being like such a like honorable person and, and guarding the the Stark girls and everything she had done, and such a good fighter, and she turned into a blubbering mess because she was a groupie to this player dude. Do you know what I mean? Who? Basically, yeah. um, chose his incestuous relationship with his sister over her, and she's blubbering about it. It's like, come on, dude. If you're going to be with a dude who's cool with incest and murder, and, and you've only slept together once, and he decides, okay, that was, that was fun, but I'm, I'm going back. You can't turn into an undignified, blubbering mess. They just stripped the dignity of that character that they built up for many seasons. I mean, she was like a very honorable character. And, and so, so since, it, was, it was a very anti-feminist message. And then, you know, in the end, it was sort of like the other message. It wasn't the message, but it's sort of like the world's going to hell because these, uh, you know, two, two angry females, you know, basically going to get us all killed, basically, is the last. So it was this very feminist show, but uh, it, it took a turn, a decidedly uh, unfeminist turn at the, uh, the last, uh, last couple episodes. Well, this... The- since you brought up the topic, you know, I thought in my head when I watched Danny take that turn, I'm like, oh, man, that's just like a male writer and this is kind of lazy, like having the female show her just emotions and so pissed off. But there are two females in my life who loved that turn and were like, hell yeah, burn it all down like feminists. So they liked that. But so that, what do see, I But that's not. That, I'm the yeah. last person to ask, I guess. So. No, but that's. But that's not. To say burn it all down. I like that where there's like innocent people getting killed like that's. 
That's disturbing. I would be disturbed by that. <laughs> I mean, they were killing just innocent hum- human beings. Like, why is that? Oh, because she's a female. Like, go, girl. You do it. Like, that, what's the? I don't understand. Yeah. The, I don't know. Yeah, I don't th- know. this is a this yeah. is a big problem. Neoliberalism, right? It's like, it's like, oh yeah, we can drone bomb people in other countries. That's not a problem. We just need to make sure we have to have represented many different genders, races, and sexual orientations while we're doing it. That's like the essence yeah. of neo- neoliberalism. It's like, oh no, 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 we'll murder those people. It's just we have a multicultural murder committee so so it's cool so it's no problem right it's morally fine because because there's a lot of different uh people represented on the murder committee that that is very dangerous thinking that is not that is not good thinking yes i'm all for different kinds of people being in power but not to to go it's not okay if they do bad things like that's that's really bad man that's that's the thing and i i sort of liked it that it didn't pander you know it's like and it's not that i don't think that it showed that Oh, she's a female and she lost her emotions. I mean, you see men do it all the time. They, you ever see that? It's actually a pretty good movie. Just remind me. You ever see the movie Heat with Robert De Niro and Val Kilmer and of Al Pacino? Course. So of course, Michael May. Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro wins, right? He's got his girl. He's got the money. He's like totally gonna get away. Like they won, right? They got it. And he's like driving to the airport to to get out of the country and you know with with everything successful. And then he realizes like this one dude ratted him out. And you just see him thinking about it. He's like, ah, God damn it. So he turns the car around. And the dude's under like police protection. And he drives to that dude's hotel. And he like gets to the police and kills that dude. He, ha- he just can't help himself. He has to exact revenge on that dude. And of course, he ends up getting caught, like doing it. Do you remember that scene at the end? I, I, I don't know why. I remember that, like such a clear scene. It was just such... Oh, uh- I'll be honest. I have, it's been a long time since, uh, I, since I've seen it. So, it deserves a rewatch. I mean, I'm a Michael Mann fan, but I, I, it's been a long time. It honestly. was just such a good illustration of the dude just not being able to let go of, you know, that dude totally dicking him over. You know, he just, he had it. He won. It was over. All he got to do is get on the plate and he just couldn't. He had to get some revenge on that dude. So that's not a female thing. That's, you know, you see that men in all movies too. It's just, it's not that. It's just that, if you if you look at the show and the arc, it's like in the end it just completely subverted and, and actually like you know one of the key characters who was like who who had like so much dignity just got totally stripped of her dignity and unnecessarily that didn't advance the plot at all that was totally unnecessary that scene between Brian and Jamie that, that was unnecessary yeah. I was like why did you, why did you make her into this blubbering mess that was just stupid well one one final episode to go to tie it all together um, we'll we'll. We'll recap it next week, I'm sure. Um, speaking of the politics, do you have any thoughts this week, Liz? Uh, you DM'd me about my guy, Buddha Jedge. Uh, yeah, he's a perfect example some criti- of that. Some critical, some critical thoughts. Your, your person, Tulsi Gabbard, is on a recent Rogan pod. I just started it. I have not, um, not finished, though, so I'll, I'll check her out on that. Um, yeah, I, and, she's not really uh, my person. She's the only one that I'm interested in, only because... She's explicit about entering all the military stuff. To me, that's like the greatest evil of all time. Right. Last episode of Game of Thrones, it's like, that was fictional, but it's like, that's what happens when the bombs are dropping. People are just getting, it's, it's horrible. That's like the worst thing that we do. So that's the person I'd most, most want to see get elected now. But yeah, the, the Mike Gravel Twitter account, which I, at Mike Gravel, he's, he's ostensibly running, but he's more just in there to troll the other candidates, and he rips on Pete Buttigieg uh, for working for McKinsey, uh, the consulting firm. The firm's, they say the firm's predatory practices were one of the major causes of the Great Recession. 
They aggressively pushed OxyContin while he was there and collaborated with the Saudi government, which punished his homosexuality with death. He's saying despite appearances, he does not represent a break from the past. He's in favor of jailing Chelsea Manning. And he's basically just, you know, he's basically saying, but it's more the same brutal. He wants more of the same brutality that we've had. So it totally rips him. And, uh, and I think justly so. Yeah, that stuff's not not great. I mean, he's worked for the company. I don't know if that means it's completely guilty by by that. But, yeah, it's, I mean, it's. I think you're right. I think that's a little strong. But I I also think though that he'd have to be saying some pretty strong things, like Tulsi saying about the military adventures and the, the the wars that we're in, or you know, Bernie's talking about inequality pretty explicitly. I, I just think that the burden's on him, not not to be the corporate guy with. You got to actually demonstrate that you're for the people, regardless. I, I, I think the burden's Fair. on him, and he hasn't he hasn't met that burden. He hasn't shown that. All right, thoughts on the China situation, the trade trade war? I don't know enough about it, but from what I can tell, it seems like we should be pushing back on China, right? Like they're they're a pretty aggressive and powerful country, and we should be negotiating. But I don't know exactly all the. I don't really know enough about it in terms of like what would happen and calling their bluff. I mean, you know, I, I know in any kind of negotiation where there's high stakes, if you do nothing, it's kind of, it's a game of chicken, right? Like if you get them to swerve, you win. If you, if you both swerve, compromise, then that's the second best outcome. Third best outcome is, you know, you push and then you end up swerving and worst outcome is you crash. And so everyone's always afraid of the crash outcome, so they always swerve. They're like, oh, we, we just can't afford a crash. We're going to swerve. And so you basically announce to the other side, like, you know, we're going to play ball with you guys because we don't want a worst-case scenario where it plunges us into a recession. But the way to win a game of chicken is obviously to rip the steering wheel out and just say, look, man, I can't turn, so I'm going into you, so you, we're both going to die or you're going to have to swerve. If you can't swerve, you can't swerve. And so to get to gain leverage in negotiations, to get a better deal, you have to sometimes risk a crash. And I don't know, you know, the extent to which the percentages are in each scenario. There's four scenarios. I don't know which one is, if it's 60% that they swerve or 20, I don't know what the percentages are. But, uh, but it's not inherently bad to, you know, to attack the status quo and say, we can get a better deal out of these guys. And this isn't like, oh, let's be nice or not nice. This is just business. It's not personal, right? I mean, it's like they're trying to beat us. We're trying to beat them. Uh, and it's a fight for resources. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong that, that Trump is trying to push back. It might be wrong. I mean, again, like I don't know the numbers, but I don't think there's anything inherently wrong about it in terms of the cost-benefit. That all matches up with everything I've read, although the main media is trying to make it seem like a horrible Trump Trump mistake. But from what I've read, that all that all makes sense. Literally. Right. I mean, you um, know, nobody really knows. We'll, we'll see. Uh, but I, there's one other thing I really want to talk about, which is politics and everything else. Can you can you guess what it is? No. What's that? It's bigger than politics. It's Bitcoin, man. What is it's it? Just, it cracked, it's, no. it cracked 8,000. <laughs> yeah, cracked I should 8, have 000. known. I should have known. You're right. That is my bad. I should have known where you were going with this. I, you know what, though? You've been quiet on this podcast about it, though. I thought for a reason, maybe. So I, I was uncl- unsure well, I, if I wanted to. I don't want to be like the Bitcoin guy because it's kind of like saying, hey, I've got a whole bunch of gold in my house or I've got a whole bunch of cash stashed under my bed, you know, and where do you stash your bundles of cash? So I'm not really right. looking to be like beating the drum in that sense, but philosophically morally i think it's like such a great development 
and there was that congressman in California who try who wants to ban it. Too late. Microsoft already announced that they're doing some sort of privacy-based, identity-based product using the Bitcoin protocol. Fidelity wants to is is preparing the way so that you could um, they'll be trading Bitcoin on their platform, and it's just you know last time it went up to twenty thousand, and everybody kind of saw it go up to twenty thousand. This time, everybody who's seeing it go up knows that it already hit 20, and no one knows where it could go. So just like you know, picking up a free agent in FAB, it's an asymmetrical bet. Yeah, you can cut them if it's terrible. You, you lose what you paid. The upside, it's asymmetrical. The, the upside is bigger than the downside. Right now, it's trading at about 8,200. It can go to zero, or it could go to... It's not like it's like, oh, it's 50%, it'll go to 16,000, and 50%, it'll go to zero. So it's at 8,000. No, it's... No one knows the percent because it's not, it's not a, a thing that can be known like that. But there's some chance it goes to, and you can name the number, name your number. And there's obviously some chance it goes to zero. But it's just, you know, it's, it's a whole new way of transferring power and wealth. So basically, if it does catch on to the extent that it really might and disrupts banking and fiat currency, basically the, the currency system, then governments will not really be able to pay for wars. It'll be like Game of Thrones. You know, if, if, if they want to go wage a war, they've got to go borrow gold from the, from the Iron Bank or they've got to uh, spend money that they, you know, that they have because if you can print your own money, then you can just wage all these wars, just go into debt. That's what we've done, right? We're like trillions and trillions of dollars in debt and we spent trillions on these wars. You can't just go on some war of choice against a country that's not attacking us with if a limited amount of resources it's only because we have an unlimited amount of resources virtually because we can print the money that we do these kind of idiotic things so um it will it will change so many things and uh and i'm very uh, i think it's a very exciting it's an exciting time to be alive it's something that makes me very uh happy i can't tell people to buy it or not but you know don't buy it to the point where you need them with money you need because let's say you buy some and let's say in five years it goes to $100,000, but in a year it's down to 4000 again, and you needed that money to pay the rent, and you sold it, you're going to be suicidal. So I would say only get in to the extent that you, can, that you won't miss it. And then get in. Get in to the extent you won't. That's what I would do. You know, I mean, that's what I think is to the extent you won't miss the money, know that there's risk, but also know that the upside's un, uncapped and that uh, you are in my opinion, contributing to a, uh, a better world. Yeah, no one should listen to me. I bought highest with it um, at uh, 15K, I believe. Um, but uh, you know what, though? I'm, I am still a believer, and um, people far smarter than me, I've just read stuff that I, I think the fiat system is going to go go down, and it's just set up to fail, and it's inevitable. And um, I'm with you here, Liz. We'll see, we'll see where it goes. And, and- and you know what? Um, in five years, people might be like, you got in at 15, you dog. Damn, how'd you get in at 15? You are so lucky. I can't believe you got in at 15. <laughs> it's still early is my point. Yeah, yeah I hear it. Right. Um, all right. I, um, I think I have to miss uh, XM show tomorrow. It sounds um, I'm going to have to go to a, to a walk-in optometrist. So it's like a legal thing. And once a year, you have to have your prescription updated to get more contacts. And my, my year passed. But it took two months to get in to see the guy, so right. I'm gonna run out. I'm gonna run out of contacts in the meantime, and my glasses are outdated. But there simply has to be a better system than this, I feel like. But it's very annoying, so I'm gonna have to go be a walk-in before my con- contacts run out. So I don't know how long that's gonna take. But um, gonna miss you on XM tomorrow, Liz. Um, 
go Warriors. And uh, yeah, that's all I got for you this week. All right, man. That's good. We covered a lot of stuff. Enjoy the optometrist. You know, those glasses, all the, all the sunglasses and glasses companies are owned by one conglomerate. And that's probably why they have these horrible rules that you're being subjected to. Yeah, why would the government care that you need to have your pres- prescription once a year for your contacts? Like what? Maybe, that maybe, be, maybe because uh, driving. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess that could make sense for driving. Yeah, yeah. interesting. I don't know, but that's yeah, good to know. They're all. It's all uh, big, big, big. Uh, it's another tree. real. We can get into that next week. But there's a real scam with this. It's definitely with the sunglass industry. I read something on it. That's why I'm not. I lost my sunglasses. I'm not buying. I'm gonna buy like twenty dollar ones. I always used to buy expensive ones. I'm not gonna do it anymore. Hmm, interesting. All right, man. Good stuff. Right. Later, let's take it easy. Talk to you next week.